0: When a patient is diagnosed with a terminal illness, the news is usually given to the patient themselves, the family, spouse or parent, by the doctor in charge of the patient's welfare. Their reaction is one many of us cannot imagine unless we have experienced the situation ourselves. But what of the effect it can have on the doctor? To talk with me today about this, I have with me Professor Rob Sanson-Fisher, Professor of Health Behaviour at Newcastle University. Professor, thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Would you tell me what your work involves here at the University?
1: Yeah, we've been involved in undertaking research about how doctors might break bad news to patients and its impact on patients. We've also been involved in training undergraduate medical students and postgraduate students in how to break bad news in the most effective, effective meaning, most acceptable way for to both patients and doctors.
0: And at what stage in the student's course do they learn how to do this?
1: Well, now every medical school in Australia, as far as I'm aware, teaches undergraduate doctors about how to break bad news. Here at the University of Newcastle, we've got a five-year undergraduate course and we teach them in their final year about this important skill.
0: For the sake of the program today, let's say that the patient is a child and that the person or parent is to be told about this. Mm-hmm. Is there some sort of method that's used to give this information or does it vary from person to person, um, patient to patient?
1: I think the simple answer to that is that it should vary individually um, because all of us are different. We're all unique human beings, so the way in which the news is broken should be tailored to our expectations and and needs. Dealing with um, children who have cancer or term terminal condition is obviously a very traumatic experience, both for the doctor other healthcare workers but obviously devastating for the parents child depending on its age often has no expectation or perceptions or not a, accurate perceptions of this so i mean i would have thought that that was one of the more difficult things that a, a doctor has to do
0: is there an easy way of going about it
1: i don't think there's an easy way of doing what is an extraordinarily difficult thing i mean uh, to tell somebody that um, that they have a terminal illness is, I think, traumatic for the doctor, traumatic for the patient. Some doctors, I think, get into a habitual way of doing it so that uh, what they can do is uh, they can do it in a ritualistic way and because they've done it a large number of times, some doctors, because of their specialities, do do this a lot of, on a lot of occasions, but... Um, I think the ritualistic way is most probably not a good way. I mean, you you need to develop habits and you need for the doctor to have skills so that they don't go home shattered. Um, But you also need them to be sensitive to the needs of the patient. Mm.
0: Does it make a difference if the cause of death is the result of an an accident or the result of a long-term illness? You know, is the doctor's reaction Mm. different?
1: I think doctor's reactions are largely or often dependent upon a number of things firstly on how the patient responds Um, so that for example if um, it's an unexpected event you know something that just rears up and takes somebody away and there's a brief moment or brief time to tell the patient and you'll be telling them about something that may happen in in a week's time or shorter that's obviously different from telling them somebody that they have cancer and that the life expectancy might be a year or two years or three years. Um, so the patient's reaction will be different from that. The other factor which influences is whether or not, you know, sometimes you see a patient and you identify with that patient, that, I, that patient's perception. They're the same age as you. Uh, you find them an attractive individual or they remind you of one of your children or, or grandchildren or whatever it may be. And that can have uh, a, quite a potent uh, effect upon them. So it does vary according to the circumstances, both time and also the nature, I think, of, of death you know, not all deaths are a pleasant process. I mean, movies and pictures show them somebody saying the last significant words to their spouse and their spouse crying gently and then they close their eyes and that's it. But some deaths, unfortunately, although healthcare does the best it can, some deaths are painful and, and the loss of physical functioning, uh, in all sorts of arenas become, can become embarrassing and difficult both for the patient and for those around them.
0: If the patient is, for example, a child, is the reaction and the attitude of the doctor different if it was someone who's elderly that's simply living out the last days, hours of their life?
1: Yeah, i th- I, I don't think you can. I don't think you can generalise in the sense that I. I you know, given my age, um, I might find somebody elderly, uh, w- w- the, somebody that you classify as elderly, still quite disturbing because in that person I might see my mother, my father, um, my sister or whatever, or myself. Um, in a child I might see one of my children when they were young. So it's, it's that identification process, I think, that makes it particularly poignant, but also the way in which the patient reacts. Do
0: some patients have a sense that, they know what they're going to be told before it happens.
1: Yeah, in some cases, the process of diagnosis is, um, you know, there's a series of tests and, and there's, um, what, you know, a binary process. You've either got this or you haven't got this. And you go through a series of tests. And the more tests you have, the more the patient feels as though it could be concerning but the more hints they get indirectly and directly. And for many patients, the word, for example, cancer conveys uh, a perception of death sentence. It doesn't always. Um, your life expectancy with cancer could be as good, um, depending on one's age and things like that, and the type of cancer, etc., as you might have um, in, in normal circumstances. But I think often patients get a sense uh, that things are pretty serious, even if they go and have a CAT scan or something like that, and the technician or the person interpreting the result says nothing. The Saying nothing is actually a message. Um, they don't say this is terrific, it's all clear. Um, so they often come with a sense of foreboding, um, and that's the reason why we encourage... Uh, our students and and doctors to ask the patient first what their perceptions are because often if you ask the patient what their perceptions are they'll say i think i might have cancer and then you're able to say you know sort of quietly yeah i'm sorry it's the case and then that's a very different process from saying i've got your test results you've got cancer
0: mm. in my introduction i said that the news is usually given by the doctor yes is it always the doctor
1: Um, it should be the doctor in the sense that the doctor has both the information and the legal responsibility. But sometimes the news is actually transferred by other professional groups. That doesn't mean that they're not competent to do so. It's just that it's more, I think, desirable for the medical practitioner to do it, just given that they'll be able to answer a full range of questions that other groups might not be able to do. So it's preferable it is the doctor, and it's preferable it's the consultant, not the junior doctor.
0: If someone has a, a family member who's going to die, does the doctor ever tell the relative? So the relative tells the patient, or does the doctor always tell the patient straight up? Always, supposing that he's in the he/she well, is uh, in a condition to know.
1: Yeah, I think we're talking about two uh, a couple of different things. Whether you ask whether or not do they, uh, the answers most probably yes they do. Should they, and the answers most probably no they shouldn't. Um, I mean, the patient. It's the patient's condition, the patient's uh, well-being that one's talking about. And so uh, it should be the patient that should be consulted first. Now, in in some cases, uh, relatives, particularly with some ethnic groups, will say, tell us first, I don't want my mother to know. Uh, While that places you in a difficult ethical and moral uh, arena... Your responsibility or the doctor's responsibility is to the patient. So I I would recommend to uh, the doctor that they actually say, look, I'm really sorry. The patient is my responsibility. Mm. I will have to discuss it with them. That sometimes, in fact, can make family upset if they think that their job is to protect the patient from that information. But the patient's got the right to know so that they can prepare and make decisions for themselves.
0: If a patient isn't told and it's because the family think they won't cope with the news mm. um, does this make a difference to the patient's well-being or attitude prior to death in other words what i'm yes. saying is if if the patient thinks they're going to get better mm. and then right at the last minute realize this is not happening mm. does this make a difference to the patient
1: i um i mean my hesitation was that i don't think we know uh, but my um My guess, based on clinical experience and observation, would be that, firstly, many patients actually have a sense, you know, as we talked about Mm -hmm. previously. So while they may not be told directly, I mean, they're aware of physical symptoms within themselves. Most diseases or conditions don't attack us, and then um, there's sort of like an abrupt change. There's usually degrading that's going on, whatever that degrading may be. But usually the person who's most sensitive, obviously, to that is the person who's suffering the condition themselves. So usually there's physical feedback that I'm not doing well. Uh, Secondly, you know, there's uh, the people around behave differently um, so that they act in a different way. You know, they most probably uh, get tears in their eyes. They're more supportive. They're more nurturing. So there's, again, a message coming to the individual. So I think the probability that an individual would not know where the definition of no is um, not cognitively, but that emotionally, no, is pretty low. And I think the thing is that you know, it refers back to uh, to an answer I gave you before. An individual's got the right, I think, to say this is how I want to spend my time, whatever time I've got, um, and I want to do it uh, and make decisions which I feel comfortable with. So. I'm sorry if that's a long answer, but I think the answer is that, in my guess, it would make a difference. It's preferable that the patient make decisions for themselves, even though people may... I'm always astounded by people's resilience. Mm.
0: My guest today is Professor Rob Sansom-Fisher, Professor of Health Behaviour at Newcastle University, and we're talking about the effects of giving the news to a patient that they're terminally ill. Are the people involved usually given the opportunity to ask questions at the time of finding out, or is it preferable for them to wait until the news is sunk in and then sort of have a list of questions to ask? Mm.
1: Mm. I, think that's a, um, I think that's a very excellent uh, issue that you've raised. Um, I think if you if I was now talking to your listeners and I said to them, you have cancer, what happens then is... There's a very strong emotional reaction uh, which most probably overwhelms any cognitive functioning. So if if we were in a genuine consultative process, you say that the patient, even if they've been expecting the news, there's just this wash of emotion that overcomes. They must probably don't hear much of what the doctor says afterwards, and they certainly can't ask the range of uh, questions that they may wish to know about Or recall them if they're given patients usually forget about 50 percent of what doctors tell them you know and that's 10 minutes after after they leave Mm -hmm. the consultation and that's partly because many doctors aren't well trained in how to convey information they use technical jargon and so on so I think the recommendation is that you actually break the news you have cancer you wait uh, because the emotional reaction is is so strong you indicate care uh, and a degree of empathy by saying, you know, genuinely saying um, or inferring that you understand how devastating this might be for the patient. And then just deal with the emotional reaction. I don't think this is, it's timely to do much else. It's difficult to reassure in these circumstances because, I mean, even if you say, well, the survival rate for this cancer is particularly good, 50% of people live more than two years, that for the doctor may be perceived as reassuring, but not for a patient. You know, um, that's two years and I'm, uh, I could be the 50% that's not going to make it. And I think the best suggestion then is um, that you tell the patient after dealing with some of the simple things, or ask the patient if they'd be prepared to come back in 24 hours, hand them a list of questions which are commonly asked, and then suggest they go away and the next day come back with their partner or significant other and then ask and work through those questions. Now, again, one burst will not do it. Information's got to be repeated because this is, this is really fundamental and you know, it's, it's life-saving and life-threatening.
0: What effect does it have on the doctor telling a patient that in this instance they've got cancer? Mm. You know, does that affect them emotionally as well or do they build a hard shell?
1: Um, I think it varies according to doctors. I mean, you know, if you talk about medical oncologists or some surgeons, they spend a fair amount of their life, a fair amount of their professional life telling patients that they have cancer, and uh, a significant proportion of those patients' life expectancy is, is not grand. Um, so they need to find a mechanism by which they can cope with that. Same as a psychiatrist, really dealing with what are often really traumatic. Uh, events in people's lives and uh, at the end of the day they might have seen uh, you know nine or ten of these patients and then they've got to go home to a family and to a different environment and have different demands placed upon them. So they do need to learn professional skills. Now those professional skills don't necessarily mean that they don't care or empathise. It means that they have developed a sense of how to do that in a skillful, caring way. Some doctors... It used to be the case that doctors used to argue that the only way I can tell is by being brutal and factual, and that's the only way I can get through. I think that's wrong. I mean, you can be skilled, caring, and sensitive and get through. We need those sort of doctors, actually, not the brutal type.
0: Do they sort of learn a technique of when they shut the surgery door that they leave it behind and then go home? When they leave the family and come back to work, they open the door? Is um, that a technique that can well when you 're talking
1: to doctors about stress well there 's a perception held by some doctors and people in the community that doctors have a lot of stress, and they do it 's a highly demanding job they 're dealing with these very traumatic things, but I think it should be said that um, people who work in factories also have a lot of stress i mean uh, in the sense that when you feel that you 're not in control of your life it 's more likely you 're going to feel stress so coming to work at nine o 'clock clocking in or 8 o'clock, clocking in, going home at 5 o'clock. But being told during that day what you'll do, how you'll respond, that's pretty stressful too. So I think there should be a balance in our perceptions. Doctors have stress, but so do folk on the shop floor. Police, ambulance officers have enormous stress. So for those people who find it difficult, you give them skills such as give them the idea that they wear two hats. There's a hat that they wear at work. And as they get into their car or get into the bus to come home, they put on a different hat and you try to leave it. But sometimes you can't. Sometimes it goes Mm. with you, wakes you up in the middle of the night. But I'd be really keen to emphasise that so does a factory worker, so does a policeman. Mm. Wakes up in the middle of the night with horrors about something, so does a doctor.
0: Are there counselling facilities available for doctors when it just gets to be too much for them?
1: Yeah, there are. You know, again, the the great problem that we face, uh, and this is all professional groups, is that people have to be firstly recognised that they're in a stressful, you know, that they're stressed and that they're not coping. And most times or many times um, there's reluctance to do that. And again, just using the analogies that I've talked about before, police, ambulance officers, airline pilots... You know, the gung-ho idea that it's uh, we can cope is pretty clear in most of us. So there's got to be a sensitivity. I'm not coping too well and this is getting too stressful. Then they've got to be able to access uh, information or assistance in a way that they think won't be detrimental to their perceptions or their professional perfe- perceptions. So doctors can do this. They They often just like the other groups i talked to, they'll use humour um, as a defensive strategy. So they'll joke about how terrible something was and you know, how they made mistakes or you know, the patient that, how the patient reacted. And that's a way of coping. We all, we all do that. Um, but there are groups that they can talk to and, uh, where necessary, they should.
0: How about the instance where a, a patient seems to be doing well, thinking about cancer, mm. and then very unexpectedly you know the bottom falls out of the world the attitude of the patient-doctor relationship mm. does that change when the patient's sort of thinking oh yeah look i've been told it's i'm probably okay yes and then suddenly finds that it's not do they tend to blame the doctor for that circumstance
1: i actually think uh, patients are incredibly good you know I, mm. and by good i mean that they they accept that illness is a probabilistic thing um that you can, you, know, you can take 100 people that smoke and more of the people who smoke will get lung cancer. But some people who don't smoke will get lung cancer and some people who smoke won't get lung cancer. You know, it's, it's a cruel and sort of um, difficult to understand process. We don't understand it. So I, th- I think patients actually, uh, when those reversals occur, if they believe that the doctor has done the best that they can for them, and if the doctor, most importantly, has indicated that they care for them, that they they don't see them as a number, they don't see them as a case, they see them as an individual, patients are very tolerant. You know, they understand. Doctors often can find it quite devastating uh, in the sense that uh, they may have to confront the failure of their craft or their profession and it's lack of predictability so that they might predict, you know, say three years and it's actually six months. And in those circumstances or uh, some of them question whether or not they, what they've done is right, uh, whether they should have done something different. So it it can be a very difficult process, I think, for a doctor.
0: You're listening to Wellbeing. I'm Iris Nichols, and my guest today is Professor Rob Sansom-Fisher. I suppose that hope springs eternal that the diagnosis might be wrong, but in the event of a patient accepting the invalid, inevitability, um, as some of them do. How does this affect the medical team as opposed to someone who fights the news?
1: There's been, in the early 1960s, there was a, quite a famous woman named Clube Ross who, who actually started some of the original studies on, on death and dying. And it's interesting, as she pointed out, that until then no one really had studied it. It was, um, it was something that's sort of like taboo that you you didn't discuss, and she, in a famous example, said that in a a large hospital in America, she couldn't find anybody, any physician, who knew any of their patients who was dying. Um, Now, that might either be that the physician was protecting the patients or, alternatively, that physicians find it hard to acknowledge, Um, and I think it's most probably a bit of both. So the study of death and dying is only recently. We still don't really sort of look at it uh, quite, you know, very, very effectively. So it might help me actually, Iris, if you just rephrase the question for me in, t- in terms of the inevitability.
0: Yeah. You've got the patient who thinks that all is going to be well. Yes. And then suddenly realises that because of test results or this sixth sense that they're not going to get better. Yeah. Does the doctor then change their uh, approach to the patient? Yeah. From saying, oh, yesterday, look, we'll tested tomorrow. Uh, we expect them to come back. Okay, you seem to be doing well. And then the results come back and, and hey, presto, they're not. They're, everything is just falling apart. Right. Does the doctor have two persona? For that one situation, one is that isn't it great, and the other one isn't as is terrible, or do they just gradually move from one spot to the other? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I think um, the danger in some of our conversation is, you know, we're talking about doctors as though they're a um, you know, similar mass. You know, of course mm. there's lots of individual variation in what a doctor is. They're just they're humans, and uh, and so they're quite unique. I think for some doctors, active treatment is the preferred mode, and so. They'll do quite heroic things where, in fact, the prognosis uh, is not really going to change too much. And people have commented that this approach sometimes can be a function of the environment in which healthcare is delivered. For example, in America, where the capitalistic society almost says an individual is paramount. If an individual strives, there is nothing an individual cannot do. And so, in this situation, healthcare in America. Firstly, it does a lot of plastic surgery, um, sort of keeps telling people that you can look after the ravages of old age and sort of seems to suggest that there's always something more we can do. Um, And so in America, quite heroic uh, and quite devastating things sometimes are done to patients with an expectation that we must keep trying. Within more, say, tribal environments, uh, if you take that as an extreme There's a fatalistic sort of acceptance that you've got a disease which they may say is, uh, you know, in the African communities that they know about. They they obviously don't know how to treat it, but they know about it. They've seen their grandfathers, sisters, brothers die of it. And so there's a fatalistic acceptance and uh, people are allowed to drift quietly into the night whereas in America you fight, fight, fight the night. So it partly depends on the environment in which you are, the perceived resources that you have at your command to do something about it, whereas you know Africa not much you know, resource except of a spiritual nature, um, and in America technological wizardry. Um, so that, that will partly depend. It's harder sometimes for doctors to accept that what they've got to do is shift from being a technological wizard to being a caring Uh, supportive uh, individual and help somebody through that palliative process Um, and and I think we have gone through a period of where medicine thought that technology was everything to a period now where we hope that doctors are increasingly saying I need both of these things in my repertoire and I need to be responsive to the patient's needs technological sometimes absolutely caring always
0: how about the patient who's been told they've got cancer, we can do X, Y, Z in the way of treatment and with a bit of luck you might survive. Mm-hmm. And that patient then says, no, I don't want to do that, I've got cancer, that's it, I don't want to go through the treatments. Does the attitude of, of the medical care, and I know it shouldn't, but does it, alter the fact that this patient doesn't want to go through Rejected chemo family. and all the rest of it? Does it make a difference to their attitude?
1: Uh Again, um, you know, for some doctors, I think it most probably does. Doctors, often what a patient will do is say, in difficult choice situations, the patient will say to a doctor, what would you do? And the doctor would find it hard, I think, not to say go for the, you know, go for it. So that when a patient makes that decision not to go for it, it's rejecting the doctor's craft or technology or medicines, craft and technology. And I think for some doctors that's hard. And the idea that they would then, they perceive themselves sometimes, some of those doctors perceive themselves as hopeless, you know, that they haven't got anything to give, mm. but of course they have. They've still got that, I understand the situation, I've seen patients dealing with it, I will work with you now on this new endeavour. It is seeing um, that the in the doctor's repertoire, It's just not technology that they should have. It's being able to nurture and care in a way that religion used to do or in a way that elders used to do in tribal environments.
0: Mm. Professor, thank you so much for coming in and talking to me. It's not an easy subject, but I think that maybe a lot of people are more inclined to shut away the idea that it's going to happen to them. Hmm. And maybe they do need, all of us, we do need to think about it in a more constructive way that it might happen. So thank you for coming in and and enlightening us and sharing your thoughts on that. My guest today has been Professor Rob Sanson-Fisher. He is the Professor of Health Behaviour at Newcastle University. This is Bye Bye from Iris Nichols, and we wish you well.